0: This is Reformation Sunday. We are celebrating the five hundredth anniversary of the Reformation. We have been doing a teaching series on first Samuel, but we thought it good and, and prudent to take a week to reflect and remember our history and um, how the Word of God has come to be so central in the life of the church, and uh, hopefully in our lives here at the gathering. So I'd like to begin by asking you all a simple question. Do you have an assurance of salvation? Or perhaps, can you have an assurance of salvation? If so, how? What do you have that assures you that if you were to die at this moment... You would be with God forever in paradise. Well, as you consider and ponder that question, I'd like to wind back the clock 500-some years to the year 1505 and travel to medieval Europe in the small German town of Erfurt. There we'll find an Augustinian monastery, home to some 50 monks, who also, I would surmise, are looking for that same answer. How can I have an assurance of salvation One monk that recently joined this monastery is young 22-year-old Martin Luther. He and his father had plans for him to be a lawyer, but after getting caught in a horrific storm and nearly struck by lightning, Martin made a vow to become a monk, and so he did. Now, Martin excelled in his dedication and his devotion as a monk. He was very rigorous in the disciplines And he wrote this, I kept the rules so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. He would fast for days on end, sleep without blankets in the freezing winter, and be in confession for hours on end. You see, young Martin was plagued by the reality of his sin and the reality of a holy God who hates sin. He would work and work and work, seeking to please God and assure himself that he was saved. And the rigor and the weight of striving for perfect obedience and devotion was killing him. The Roman Catholic Church offered no real hope of assurance. Even for a devout monk like Luther, they taught that there were mortal sins that if one committed without repenting of, they were in grave fear of damnation. The church taught a false doctrine of purgatory, that apart from the few saints that the church had canonized, most would spend years, perhaps hundreds of years, perhaps thousands of years in a purging fire. Or would you be cleansed of sin and then one day hopefully be fit for heaven? Well, Luther was well too aware of his sins. He wrestled with the holiness and the justice of God, the seeming unyielding weight of the law, constantly accusing his guilty conscience. How is a sinful man made right before a holy God? In 1507, Martin was ordained a priest and he offered his first mass. Now, Mass for a Roman Catholic is much different than what we here recognize as communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church taught and still to this day teaches that the bread and wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. What Christ offered in a bloody manner, they offer in a unbloody manner, re-crucifying Christ in a propitiatory way. It's actually atoning for sin every time Mass is offered. And at the church council of Trent that was begun in 1545 as a response to the Reformation, the church declared this, If anyone says that the sacrifice of the mass is one only of praise and thanksgiving, a mere commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory one, let him be anathema. And the Roman Catholic Church to this day still affirms the council of Trent. So as Martin is offering his first mass and considering the weight of this impossible feat of re-crucifying Christ in an unbloody manner, he is terrified. Later writing of the event, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? I am dust and ashes and full of sin and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. Well, in God's kindness, Martin has a spiritual mentor at the monastery named Johann Staupitz, who would often hear his hours and hours of confession, and he would encourage Martin to look to the wounds of Christ. And he eventually directed Martin to pursue an academic career to study the Holy Scriptures at the University of Wittenberg. And that was not something most monks or priests pursued. Few at this time really studied the Scriptures. And there are many reasons for this, but two are accessibility and authority. The Bible for most was not easily accessible. It was written in Latin, a language few could read and which no one really spoke. And books were expensive. The printing press was still relatively new. And so the vast majority of people had zero access to God's word. And also authority. Scripture was not held as solely authoritative. The church councils throughout the centuries and the dictates of the bishop of Rome were where real authority lay. The buck stopped with the bishop of Rome, the pope, the papa, the holy father. He was and is seen as the vicar of Christ, the substitute of Christ, Christ's earthly representative, even though Jesus said when he ascended to heaven that he would send another helper to be with us and to lead us and guide us into the truth. The Holy Spirit, not the Bishop of Rome. And this Bishop also took the title of Roman Pontiff, or Bridge Between Man and God, even though Scripture clearly declares that there is one mediator between God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the blasphemy? But this was and is what the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches, and yet despite the distortions and the ungodly traditions of men, Martin Luther, in God's kindness, is divinely privileged to learn and to study God's word, gazing at the Lord Jesus Christ more and more and less and less at himself. In Martin's studies at Wittenberg University, while reading through Paul's epistles, especially Romans, he wrestles with this idea, the just shall live by faith. And Luther writes this, I greatly long to understand the justice of God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. And so amidst his studies, as he is seeking to understand the justice of God, he is sent on a pilgrimage in 1510 to Rome. Now, Rome is like Mecca to a Muslim or Jerusalem to a Jew. It is the holy city. That is where the bishop of Rome resides. And so if you want to get close to God, this is the place. And as he travels to Rome and visits countless grave sites of dead popes, 46 to be exact, And myriads and myriads and myriads of endless relics, he begins to experience the corruption and the vice that is within the church and within the priesthood. Rome begins to lose its luster, and he begins to wonder if all these human efforts are really working to assuage the justice of God. And one day, he is climbing the Scala Sanctor, the holy steps. These 28 marble steps were said to be brought from Jerusalem by Constantine's mother, Helen, in the fourth century. These steps, which are still there to this day, pilgrims still go there and climb these steps. They are said to be the very steps of the Praetorium of Pontius Pilate. And as one climbs these stairs on their knees, saying, Pater Noster, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, they're helping to rescue souls from purgatory. Well, Martin had a dead grandmother, Lindemann Luther, and he was hoping to climb those steps and help get grandma out. And yet, as he got to the top of those steps, he feels a growing doubt regarding all this human effort, and he looks back and he wonders, who knows whether this is true? Well, if the Holy Roman Catholic Church is not as holy as he thought, and if they are supposedly the ones dispensing the merits of Christ, holding the keys to your salvation, then what hope, what assurance can one have? A wretched sinner of being right before a holy God. He continues to muse over the justice of God, deeply yearning to understand what Scripture meant when it said, the just shall live by faith. Well, we will pause in our story and do our own study and eavesdrop a bit on Luther's discoveries as he studied God's word. Our text for this morning is Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to the book of Galatians. Now, the book of Galatians was a gospel gem for Luther. He wrote a rich commentary on it that I will reference often in this message. And John Bunyan, who followed Luther some hundred years later, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, he prized Luther's Galatian commentary over any other book except the Bible, saying that when this book came into his hands, it was as if it had been written out of his own heart, a book most fit for a wounded conscience. And perhaps that is you this morning. You have a wounded conscience. No assurance of salvation. You don't know if you can have an assurance of salvation as your sins constantly accuse you before a just and holy God. Well, I pray that as we open God's word, the light and the life of the gospel would pierce your dark dungeons of doubt and that you like Luther and Bunyan and countless other saints of old would find the doors of paradise opening and welcome you in. So let's read our text this morning and then I will pray. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for this day that you have given us life and breath. We thank you for gathering us, Father. We thank you that we have your word to read and to study, Lord. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us into all the truth. Lord, I pray that you would open blind eyes this morning, that you would set captives free, Lord. Where there is bondage, Lord, that you would bring liberty. Lord, that where there is shame and where there is guilt, that you would bring hope and love and faith. Lord, we thank you for this time. Please bless us as we hear your word, as we sit under the word of God, and may we be changed by it, that we would be doers of your word. We ask that you would keep us from the evil one, Lord. We love you, and we, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, all God's people said Well, I have two points to draw from our text this morning. Point number one, the curse of the law. And point number two, the blessing of the gospel. So point number one, the curse of the law. All of humanity's religious imaginations find at their core and essence, man's effort to make God believe in him. If I do this, then God will accept me. If I embrace this or abstain from this, then God, you will believe in me. It is the legalist in all of us. And here in our text this morning, our dear Galatians are being hoodwinked and seduced by this all too familiar siren. These dear saints, this community of God, this church whom Paul loves are being played the fool and bewitched. Why? They're being tempted to embrace another gospel, a false gospel, a human construct that cannot save They have misapplied and wrongly understood God's word. For Jesus told his disciples that all of scripture testified of him. That he was the true Israel. He was the true Passover lamb. He was the true temple. Everything else was shadows pointing to the substance that's found in Christ. Well, these Judaizers are convincing the Galatians that they needed to be circumcised and go back to these shadows, these Jewish laws and customs in order, in order to truly bear the mark of being God's people. But again, circumcision was always pointing towards a deeper cutting, a circumcision of the heart. Even Moses and the prophet Jeremiah spoke to this, calling the people of Israel to not put stock in externals, but to circumcise their hearts. The true mark of Christian community our hearts aflame with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. But sadly, these saints in Galatia had begun to listen to other teachers who were telling them that this wasn't enough. They needed to add something to what God had already done. Well, friends, this legalism is rampant in all of us, and all of us are easily prey to its vice. We love to judge by external factors and not by the heart of the matter. Even the apostle Peter was tempted in such fashion fashion as Paul. Reminded the Galatians, if you look back one chapter, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to see if before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? They wanted to go back to the old covenant and not realize that Christ had come and had made a new covenant. The glories of the new covenant is the work of God. God taking out our hearts of stone and giving us new hearts, pouring out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And so the question Paul then asked the Galatians, how did this happen? Did you receive the Spirit by some work that you did? Did you begin by the Spirit, but 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 must now be perfected through human effort? Did God supply you with the Holy Spirit because of the work you did? The emphatic answer is no. As Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, then one will understandably ask, if we are not justified by works of the law, then what is the purpose of the law? Well, in God's infinite counsel, the law has many purposes that we don't have time this morning to exhaust. But one specific and crucial purpose that Paul is expounding here in our text is that the purpose of the law is never to justify, but always to condemn, to bring a conviction of indwelling sin. The law operates off this principle obey God perfectly, and you will be rewarded. Do this, and you will live. Don't do this, and you will die. Listen to an old 19th century saint write about how the law works. Every man who knows what is right and will not do it execrates or condemns himself. The consciousness of transgression is a clinging inward curse, a witness of ill desert, foreboding punishment. The law of conscience admits no exceptions. In the majesty of its unbending sternness, it can only be satisfied by our continuing in all things that it prescribes. Every instance of failure attended with whatever excuse or condemnation leaves upon us its mark of self-reproach. And this inward condemnation, this consciousness of guilt latent in the human breast is not self-condemnation alone. Not a merely subjective state, but it proceeds from God's present judgment on the man. It is the shadow of his just displeasure. Can you relate to that? You know what you ought to do, but you fail to do it. You perhaps try to justify yourself or prop yourself up with some excuse, some, some rant or monologue. But inwardly, it begins, to, it begins to nag and to weigh you down like that large burden in Pilgrim's Progress that Christian just kept wearing before he met Evangelist. The law kills you. Theologian Michael Horton says, The law is good, but we are not. The law commands, but cannot give. It tells us what must be done, but helping us get it done is simply not laws job description. It condemns us for violation, but can exercise clemen- but cannot exercise clemency or mercy or amnesty for violators. We'll look at verse 10 of chapter three. Paul writes, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Jesus' brother James writes similar in his letter. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Well, let's use this tool of the law this morning. Let's go through the the Ten Commandments together to hear what God commands of us and see how we fare. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to any graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Do you feel the law doing its work? Have you in your lifetime obeyed the law of God perfectly? Perhaps you say, Well, I've never murdered, committed adultery. But again, look at the heart. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he speaks to this, challenging those who trust in their good works. You have heard Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Regarding adultery... Jesus says, you've heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So according to the law of God, brothers and sisters, what are you? If you have taken God's name in vain, what does that make you? A blasphemer. If you have stolen, a thief. If you have lusted after a woman in your heart, an adulterer. If you have born false witness, you're a liar. If you've been angry with your brother, calling him a fool, you're a murderer. So the law has revealed to you, or at least I can speak for myself, it reveals to me that I'm a blasphemer, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer, I'm a liar, and I am a murderer. What does the law say I deserve? The wrath and the judgment of God. The fires of hell. Now, you may not like that sentence. You may try to erase hell. But what criminal ever liked the sentence that a just judge delivered? So, the purpose of the commands of God is to bring a conviction of sin. It humbles us, it breaks us down to show us our lack, our desperate need. The law brings the fear of God. In Luther's Galatians commentary, he says this, where there is no fear of God, there can be no thirsting for grace or life. God must therefore have a strong hammer to break the rocks and a hot burning fire in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains. That is to destroy this furious and obstinate beast That when a man by this breaking is brought to nothing, he should despair of his own strength and thus terrified should thirst after mercy and remission of sins. You are killed by the law that through Christ you may be quickened and restored to life. Paul will say the same thing later on in verse 24. The law's purpose is to be a guardian to lead us to Christ. So if none of us obeys the law of God perfectly, if we in ourselves are not righteous and God demands perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, how can we be reconciled to God? We need a substitute. We need someone to stand in the gap for us. And it isn't the Pope. As Matthew mentioned last week, we need a champion. Let's return to Luther's life. As Luther continues to study God's word, he's beginning to see more and more the true purpose of the law. It is not meant to justify, it can't justify. The law is good, but he begins to see more clearly that trying to be justified by his own works of obedience is like counting money out of an empty purse, it just doesn't work. And yet, as the veil of doubt and human effort is slowly lifting from his own soul, a seductive evil begins to roam across the German countryside, taking naive souls captive and, bind, and blinding them to the glories of the gospel. The Roman Catholic Church at this time was in desperate need of money. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was under construction. Pope Leo X, a Medici by birth, he's from Florence, he is a deep, patron of the arts, and he is seeking funds to help him finish St. Peter's Dome. Now, this dome was a phenomenal work of art and engineering, nearly 140 feet across in diameter and almost 450 feet tall from floor to steeple. I've been inside St. Peter's Basilica. I've looked up at this massive, massive behemoth of a dome, and this massive undertaking was obviously expensive. And so to help finance it, Pope Leo allows a German archbishop by the name of Albrecht to sell indulgences. Albrecht himself was deeply in debt as he basically bought the office of archbishop and he had maxed out all of his credit cards. So to pay them off, he sells indulgences, keeping part of the money to pay off his debt and sending the rest to Rome to help finish St. Peter's Dome. And the the Dominican friar that he deputized to do this dastardly deed to fleece the sheep was Johann Tetzel. Tetzel would travel throughout the countryside selling indulgences, promising pardons, absolutions, remission to sin, get out of purgatory cards for those living and for those dead, making the oft-repeated refrain as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, Luther saw the ruse. He smelled a rat. And the more he read God's word and trusted the authority of Scripture over any human counsel, the more he saw that this was a false hope, a false assurance of salvation, a false gospel. He had tried in vain to be justified by human effort, and so in response, Luther prayerfully penned the Ninety-Five Theses, also titled a Disputation on the Power of Indulgences. It was written in Latin and nailed to the Castle Church doors of Wittenberg on October thirty-first, fifteen seven, All Hallows' Eve. Luther had hoped for a scholarly debate about the practice, the efficacy, the the veracity of these indulgences that were being marketed and traded throughout Germany. These 95 theses were quickly translated into German, and the printing press quickly spread Luther's growing concern across Germany and across Europe. So as the Roman church is greedy for filthy lucre, Martin in these 95 theses pens these words... The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God, but this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. On the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is naturally most acceptable for it makes the last to be first. Therefore the treasures of the gospel, the treasures of the gospel, are nets with which they would formerly fish for men of riches. The treasures of the indulgences are nets with which they now fish for the riches of men. And the heartbeat of his, of his 95 theses he found in the first and the 36th. And they say this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And then 36, every truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without letters of pardon, even without indulgences. Now, these statements were shocking, they were scathing, they were indicting for the Roman Catholic Church and its incessant sacramentalism and its seemingly constant attempts to regulate and to ration God's mercy. But how could Luther pen these words? How can a holy God be just and fully pardon and forgive a sinner? How is a sinful man made right before a holy God? Can I have an assurance of salvation? Point number two, the blessing of the gospel. Well, let's return to Galatians. Paul in these first five verses has been asking them how they receive the spirit of God. Identifying this, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, as the true marker of being a Christian. Being a part of the communion of God. So how did they receive the Spirit? By works of the law? No, by faith. And faith in what? Jesus Christ crucified, verse one. As he will tell the Galatians later in chapter five, you are running well. Who hindered you? Who tripped you up? They were tripped up by those who were telling them that by the works of the law, they could be justified. And Paul says that is anathema. The law can't justify, only Christ can The new covenant is effective because it rests on the finished work of Christ. It rests on indicatives, not imperatives. On promises, not prescriptions. On covenants, not commands. On the gospel, not the law. And this, Paul says, is a gospel that even Abraham believed. In verse 6, Paul challenges these Judaizers by bringing up Father Abraham. A Judaizer cannot argue with Father Abraham. How did God work with him? By faith or by his own works? And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, which our brother read this morning. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this is before he is circumcised. So what does it mean when it says he believed the Lord and he was counted as righteous? Well, the term counted is generally an accounting term in reference to money being received or counted as payment towards some end. We use the same word, credited. Money that is not yours is credited to your account. Abraham's faith accounted to him a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. Abraham's faith accounted to him a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. Abraham, whose righteous account was empty, so to speak, gets his account filled with righteousness. One who is not righteous is accounted righteous. We hear Paul make this same argument in Romans 4, which our brother read this morning, when he says again in regards to Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Did you hear that? Paul just called Father Abraham ungodly. Yes, Abraham was ungodly. Like you, like me, like the Galatians, like Paul. Despite being an incredible man of faith, he was still nonetheless ungodly. And yet Abraham believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And it's important to clarify here that Abraham didn't just believe in God. He believed God. There is a massive difference. You can believe in God without believing God, but you can't believe God without believing in God. Many say they believe in God, but they don't actually believe God. They don't take him at his word and believe that what he says is true. When you read John the Baptist cry out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or you hear the prophet Isaiah cry out regarding the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, even Father Abraham, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do we respond in faith or unbelief? What could bring God more glory? to doubt the glorious work of his son and think that we must somehow muster up our own penance and try to pay off our sins, or with childlike faith, believe in the finished work of Christ and receive the free gift of eternal life. How glorious it is when a child trusts his father, when the creature trusts his creator. Luther's Luther's thoughts. It is a further function of faith that it honors him whom it trusts with the most reverent and highest regard since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. There is no other honor equal to the estimate of truthfulness with which we honor him whom we trust. Could we ascribe to a man anything greater than truthfulness and righteousness and perfect goodness? On the other hand, there's no way in which we can show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him as when we do not trust him. The very highest worship of God is this, that we ascribe to him truthfulness, righteousness, and whatever else should be ascribed to one who is trusted. So friends, you and I, our measly, pathetic works, to try in our pride to show God how worthy we are of his love, that is foolish vanity, we're being bewitched. Oh, how much more glorious and God-honoring to simply trust that your Father in heaven loves you and that he sees our sin and the brokenness deeper, far deeper than you and I could ever plumb or fathom. And so to rescue us and to save us, he sent his only begotten Son into the world to die in our place on our behalf so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith who has trust in Jesus. Now, perhaps you say this seems too easy. What of works? Well, friend, the Bible speaks much about works. It does. But first, you need to understand God's work before you can ever begin to understand your works. Again, covenants always come before commands. Promises always precede prescriptions. The gospel comes before. Before the law. The law is good and we ought to obey God and do works of righteousness. But having been made righteous by faith in Christ, that is the only way that we can even do righteous things. Our obedience to God must flow from our faith in God. Your journey with God must have the right starting point. The gospel starting point is faith. And it travels through the majestic mountains of God's righteousness, and it leads to blessing. The law starts with your works and leads you through the swamps of your own self-righteousness, and it will slowly consume you and swallow you and condemn you. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But greater news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Saints, take a moment and focus on the glories of the gospel. Look at our final two verses, verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see the great exchange here? Christ became a curse for us so that we might receive the promised spirit. Christ takes the wrath of God for all of our sin and our rebellion. And in exchange, freely gives us the Holy Spirit and perfect righteousness. Salvation is a gift for the guilty not a reward for the righteous. And Martin Luther finally began to know deep down what it meant that the just shall live by faith. Well, in closing, a couple years after posting these 95 theses, the coin finally dropped for Martin. The gospel that he had been discovering and and considering and, and even proclaiming finally made the drop from his head to his heart. And he discovered a peace, an assurance from God that no devil in hell could take away. He writes these words. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. If you have a true faith that Christ is your savior, Then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. I pray today that God has shown his light into your hearts to help you see the glory of God clearly on display in the face of Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us so that we could be blessed and receive the promised spirit through faith. Let me leave with two practical applications. Number one, cling to Christ alone. Take time to rehearse and to relearn the gospel. Don't think you got it figured out. You will never plumb the depths of Christ's riches. Stop listening to yourself and talk to yourself. Remind yourself of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the devil accuses you, fight the good fight of faith and cling to Christ. Doubt your doubts. Feed your faith. Even Luther, despite this glorious reality that he just shared with us of being reborn and the doors of paradise opening, he still struggled with doubts and unbelief. And in his Galatians commentary, he gives this encouragement to those wrestling with these feelings of doubt and despair. But battle against that feeling and say, even though I feel myself completely crushed and swallowed by sin and see God as a hostile and wrathful judge, yet in fact, this is not true. It is only my feeling that thinks so. The word of God, which I ought to follow in these anxieties rather than my own consciousness, teaches much differently. Namely, that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And that he does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. So cling to Christ alone. And then second, read God's word. Luther's transformation, his reformation came as he read and he studied God's holy word. So spend more time reading God's word. Spend more time reading God's word. We don't know what we don't know. Perhaps those blind spots that nag you as you read God's word will flood with divine gospel light and you will find a freedom in places you didn't even know you were enslaved. Very practically, go home today and read through the whole book of Galatians and then do it again tomorrow. Do it all week and reflect on how God's word has impacted your heart and life. Let me finish with a hymn of Luther's that beautifully portrays his journey of faith as he came to find deep assurance of his salvation in the finished work of Christ. In devil's dungeon chained I lay, the pangs of death swept over me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life and sin had made me crazy. Then was the father troubled sore to see me ever languish. The everlasting pity swore to save me from my anguish. He turned to me, his father heart, and chose himself a bitter part. His dearest did it cost him. Thus spoke the son Hold thou to me, from now on thou wilt make it. I gave my very life for thee, and for thee I will stake it. For I am thine, and thou art mine, and where I am, our lives entwine. The old fiend cannot shake it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the glories of the gospel. We thank you for the blessing of the gospel. We thank you for the word of God, that hearing comes by faith, Lord. We thank you that you have opened up our eyes to see more and more the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that we would trust, that we would believe God, that we would honor you as trustworthy, that when Jesus cried out on that cross, it is finished, that it was finished, that all of our sin, all of our rebellion was paid for so that the love and the grace and the mercy of God could flood into our hearts. Would you pour out your spirit richly upon us, Lord, We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion today to celebrate, to give thanks for Christ dying for our sins, the just for the unjust. If you're a Christian, if you trust in Christ, If you've been baptized, identifying yourself as I have been crucified with Christ, I've been buried with him in baptism, raised with him to newness of life, that describes you, then please break bread with us and celebrate the finished work of Christ in your place and on your behalf. Once you take the elements back to your seat, one of the elders will come up and lead us in communion.